Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This week's episode is the first part of a three-part series on the history of slavery, from the very first peoples, through to classical times, through all the way to the early modern period, and the relationship of slavery with the value, the political concept of freedom, and the relationship between the two of them. This is possibly the most ambitious project I've undertaken so far on the Political Philosophy Project. We attempt to continue a single narrative through this three-parter episode, although I do think you can listen to any individual part in isolation. My guest for this project is Professor Orlando Patterson. Professor Patterson is a historical and cultural sociologist at Harvard University, and he's also held appointments at the University of the West Indies and the London School of Economics. His interests are in the study of slavery, the sociology of poverty and underdevelopment. He's also written on the cultural sociology of sports, especially the game of cricket, Professor Patterson is the author of numerous major academic books, including the hugely influential Slavery and Social Death, which challenges our conventional view of slavery as owning another person in a breathtaking study of slavery in many different peoples from the earliest societies through to contemporary ones. He argues for a view that slavery is the personal, violent domination of natally alienated and socially dead people. Following that work, and in some ways a sequel to it, was Freedom in the Making of Western Culture, which is the book whose narrative we're essentially going to be following in this interview series. In that work, and I've been very, very influenced by this book, as I said to Professor Patterson at the beginning of the interview, he argues that the desire for freedom, the desire to be left alone or on the more positive side, to participate in the community affairs, the running of your state, that that is a very historically and culturally unique concept that it hasn't existed for all peoples. More than that, it was invented specifically at a certain time and place in history in response to large-scale slavery, and that the only reason we feel today that it's desirable to be free is because of developments in the nature of slavery that occurred thousands of years ago. Orlando Patterson has also had a role as a public intellectual. For eight years, he was the special advisor on social policy and development to Prime Minister Michael Manley of Jamaica, who was one of the more radical lefty Caribbean leaders at the time. He was a founding member of Cultural Survival, one of the leading advocacy groups for the rights of indigenous peoples, and was for several years a member of the board for Freedom House a civic organisation for the promotion of freedom and democracy around the world. He's also the author of three novels, published widely in journals and the national press, and his columns have featured in The New York Times, Time magazine, Newsweek, The Public Interest, The New Republic, and The Washington Post. 
He's also the recipient of many, many awards, including relevant to this conversation, the National Book Award for Nonfiction, which he won for Freedom in the Making of Western Culture. As always, if you are enjoying this show and finding it valuable, we suggest a donation of $2 per episode. That's really easy to do on Patreon. You can find the links to that, as well as to follow us on social media, subscribe on iTunes, RSS, SoundCloud, on our website, which is politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And if you stay tuned to the end of the episode, I do have a little bit of a survey for the audience on how we fund the podcast going forward. So stay tuned for that. And another great way to support the show is to just share, tag friends, help get the word out there. As always, a big thank you to everyone who does either of those two things. So, let's get right in. In this first part, we're going to lay the groundwork. I'll introduce Professor Patterson, and we're going to talk about what is slavery, how did it come to be and exist in the earliest peoples, and its paradoxical relationship with freedom. In the second part of this series, we're going to be looking specifically at classical Athens and how the role of slavery there led to the invention of freedom. For Professor Patterson argues that freedom is an invented, not a natural value. In the final part of the series, we'll look at what Professor Patterson calls the universalization of freedom in the Roman Empire, in early Christianity, and bring the timeline all the way up to the early modern period. So, like I said, this is a really ambitious project. I hope you can stay with us through all of it, which will be coming out over the next month. Please do support us, share share this with others, And yeah, I hope you enjoy. I'm really, really excited to bring you this. So without any further preamble, it is my pleasure to present Professor Orlando Patterson. joined today by Professor Orlando Patterson. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great. So how do you describe yourself these days? I'm formerly a professor of sociology, so I guess I'm a sociologist, or more properly a historical sociologist who emphasizes culture. But my work has broadened um, out from sociology quite significantly and I think is read more by non-sociologists than sociologists these days. That's partly because I didn't take quite the same trajectory in historical sociology as most of my contemporaries did. Uh, From the very beginning, Slavery and Social Death, which came out in the early 80s, just when historical sociology was taking off as a major sub-discipline within sociology, um, people like um, Wallerstein, Scotch Bowl, and so on, 
Um, but my development differed significantly from theirs in that um, the emphasis on historical sociology has been on big structural issues, um, uh, total societies examining problems um, uh, of macro sociology, if you like, um, revolutions, world systems, and so on. Um, those are important issues, but I've always been more um, um, aligned to um, approaches that emphasize more institutions and more relationships and ideas, and the relationship between ideas, um, uh, new cultural forces, and um, social structures. So, and that's, that was the thrust of, um, of slavery and social death, and of course, in the case of freedom in the making of Western culture, I was primarily concerned with the invention, development of a major uh, cultural force in Western societies. And, um, and, and that's not been an approach which my discipline especially likes. So, um, so I found myself more in, um, a, in correspondence and um, in general interaction with um, uh, students of culture, uh, economic historians, interest, uh, surprisingly, uh, and um, philosophers, uh, as well as um, some literary people, um, rather than um, with sociologists, at least with my historical sociology, with my more conventionally sociological work, such as my work on um, black youth and development, I have more of a sociological audience. But my major work, in fact, has um, not really resonated all that much with sociology. But then, of course, if you go to the other side of the divide and you deal with people who just deal with ideas and values, i.e. philosophers, then yes. you, because um, this is how I discovered your work, then you have like a yeah. weird antipathy that runs the other way, where like, Absolutely. if you want to talk about the role of institutions, so for instance, right. the institution of slavery in the development of many of the ideas, many of the cultures, many of the whatevers, of the West, there's, um, so I, I mentioned to you before we came on, I used your work a little bit in um, my MA because I talked about the history of freedom. And um, you just got sort of blank stares when you talked about like structural forces impact on how we came to have, how we came to create and express that value in particular in particular ways. If it's okay with you, I'd actually, I don't want to make the interview about me, but I thought just because I do have you on the line, I'd tell you like how I came to your work and like, because I think we don't give people big compliments because it feels weird, but I did really want to let you know that your um, freedom work in particular, I've read your, some of your other stuff, but this has been a really important book for me. I read it, um, yeah, I read it just after I finished my um undergrad degree. I did an undergrad degree at uh, Oxford in politics and philosophy, and I was very, very interested in history of political thought. Um, I was interested in the development of freedom, and I think I'd come to a view that was somewhat like the thesis of this book before I'd read the book, which was that, one, freedom is really quite 
historically and culturally unique, and we don't spend enough time thinking about the uniqueness. And two, it's obviously arising in what a Marxist might call a dialectic with the institution of slavery. And we just don't talk about either of those things at all. And so I read your book I, it, literally the day after I'd finished my final exam. For whatever reason, I just went back to the library just out of sheer habit, found it randomly, cover to cover it in a few days. And I was just like, yes, this is like, like half-formed thoughts that I've had, just infinitely better put and expressed. So thank you for this work. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, they do have the problem of the other end of that blank stare from philosophers. Uh, even those who claim uh, to be taking account of context, um, it's, um, it's hard for them to uh, even comprehend um, what, the, um, what the role of something, something as base as slavery could have to do with freedom. I mean, the paradox, of course, is, um, is what hits people. But more importantly, um, what's the point? What's the point of getting into um, the structural conditions under which ideas emerge? That has been an important problem I have um, with the prescriptivists. I mean, there are thousands of works on freedom. I'd say 90 percent of them are by philosophers or by prescriptivists who are concerned with exploring the meaning, the nature, the true nature of freedom is sort of armchair philosophizing about freedom. Um, there are literally thousands. I mean, I, I, I buy them out of a sense of duty. And, I, um, you know, an interesting thing with one of the most um, uh, widely cited person on freedom um, is, of course, uh, Isaiah Berlin. And um, he, and in, um, it, Interestingly, and I've had to go back to him recently because a friend of mine just did a documentary on him and um, asked me to preview her her film. And um, the interesting thing about him is that he did at certain moments sort of um, reflect on the fact that, uh, well, first of all, he said that he's not an armchair philosopher and he's, he's concerned with context. Um and, and at one point, he actually sort of raised the possibility that slavery may have something to do with it. But then he went off in, in another, uh, he sort of backpedaled, I think, and uh, in talking about negative and positive freedom in a somewhat more philosophical way. Although, of course, his ideas were very closely linked to the Cold War, and part of his popularity was indeed um, the fact that it fitted so nicely with the um, antagonism towards um, socialism and socialist sort of uh, approaches to um, to the world, but um, apart from Berlin, and only in a limited way, uh, most philosophers tend not to be very keen on this. What I have succeeded in doing, I think, is um, persuaded some classicists, because um, the the, um, the the idea was that even more of an abomination among classicists who sort of saw Greece and its great creations as something totally removed from the realities of Greek life, you know. Um, uh, at least um, some classicists were, um, uh, have been um, moved to at least contemplate that, that possibility. Partly on an influence, someone who was very important for me, um, Moses Finley, 
um, Sir Moses Finlay, the late Sir Moses Finlay, was one of the great sort of classicists of um, uh, the late 20th century, um, uh, did recognize the role of slavery in the development of Greek, more particularly Athenian civilization. But I should point out that Finlay, um, while he recognized the underlying significance of slavery for the rise of Greece, was somewhat skeptical. Uh, we never got into it in great detail because he, he, I was more involved with him when I was writing the book on slavery. Um, but I think he was a little bit more um, skeptical, although not hostile to the idea that freedom itself could have emerged dialectically from um, the condition of slavery. Um, but other classicists um, have... Um, come around to the view that there may be such um, a relationship. It's not, it's, but it, it's on, on the face of it, it's not a crazy idea, right, that, that, that um, because slavery is often used as and recognised as the antonym of freedom, right. the opposite exactly. of it. So it's not crazy that the development of the idea of freedom had something to do with the historical and sociological reality of the institution of its opposite. It's not, if you just state the idea, it doesn't sound or at least it doesn't sound to me like this should be an insane thought. And yet you, you really do get, both from historians and political philosophers, like I say, blank stares. So let's, let, let's get into your book. I wanted to ask you first, because um, your approach to the subject of freedom wasn't as someone who'd spent a lot of time thinking in an idealised way about what freedom ought to be. You encountered it as a scholar of slavery. And so I just wanted to read to you um, a, a power, not a paragraph, a sentence from your book. This is just from the preface to Freedom. Um, Originally, the problem I had set out to explore was the socio-historical significance of the taken-for-granted tradition of slavery in the West. Armed with the weapons of a historical sociologist, I had gone in search of a man-killing wolf called slavery. To my dismay, I kept finding the tracks of a lamb called Freedom, a lamb that stared back at me on our first fugitive encounters with strange, uninnocent eyes. And that gives you a, a taste for why I got hooked by this book. Could you cash that sentence out a bit? You, you were in search of a wolf called Slavery and kept yes. finding this strange, uninnocent lamb of Freedom. Right. right. So I've, I've uh, growing up, I was just existentially um, involved with the problem of freedom and, uh, and, and of slavery. I grew up in colonial Jamaica during the decolonization period. Um, I, um, uh, so freedom was in, the, was in the air growing up, was in, more in the collective sense of freedom from the, from the British colonial um, rule, but also... Um, uh, as I grow up, there's great interest in slavery, in fact, in the decolonization of um, colonial education, which had originally been focused on the wonders and grandeur of the British Empire. We finally um, um, were being taught about the real past and um, became very, almost obsessed with the problem of slavery because it increasingly became obvious that Jamaican and Caribbean problems are weighed down heavily by the, um, uh, the the slave and the plantation past. In my case, I grew up literally surrounded by plantations, and so the ghost of the past, sort of part of my childhood, and so on. Um, 
And so I knew that the study of slavery was going to be central in any understanding of society. My interest in freedom, however, started rather early with a paradox I had as a young colonial kid. Um, Every year, it was the 24th of May, we celebrated Empire Day. If you can imagine, all over the half of the world that the British ruled, um, little school children were waving the Union Jack, and we got a day off, so we loved it and um, for the day off and for the ice cream and the red, white, and blue um, all over the place. But we would um, sing um, national, British national songs and so on. And one of the, the ones we sang before we got to the, um, the, the anthem, of course, um, was Rule Britannia. And um, every 24th of uh, May, Empire Day, we would sing that with the Britons Rule never, never, ever will be slaves. Yeah, right. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and even as a 10-year-old, that's, I, I always kind of scratch my head on that little line because the, the, the response was, whoever threatened the British uh, from being slaves, they were the ones who went around enslaving half the world, and right. especially in my words. And so it was very strange that um, the imperialists were sort of saying that Britons never would say, what is going on? And so clearly... The definition of being free is that you're never a slave. I mean, that's when the idea was planted in my head, in a sense. I mean, I just singing this song every 24th of May. And um, but then, you know, my work, my first academics works were on um, slavery, and um, and uh, and then in Jamaica, um, which had one of the worst forms of slavery, uh, the most cruel forms of slavery anywhere in history. But which also had, part of for that reason, um, one of the highest tradition of slavery roles in the name of freedom. And Jamaica is almost anarchically obsessed with freedom. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, you've heard of the Haitian slave revolt, um, which is often celebrated as the first successful slave revolt. But in fact, that's not quite accurate. The first successful slave revolt is one I had written about at great length. So the long string of revolts between 1655, when the British captured the island, and 1740, between the British and runaway slaves, and known as Maroons, eventually the British sued for peace. And if I did something quite incredible, extraordinary in the history of slave societies, they actually granted them their freedom and a state within a state with their own government and so on. So the idea of fighting for one's freedom has sort of remained a sort of central feature of Jamaican life. Indeed, the slave revolt of 1832 was critical in, in pushing the British Parliament to pass the um, Abolition Acts. But Jamaicans have been rebelling ever since, even afterwards. And so on. my very first um, uh, serious article based on archival research was was was, was um, written when I was a high school senior, won the National Prize, and just on the Moran Bay Rebellion. So I've always been preoccupied with um, the problem of slavery and of freedom, and the connection was there lurking in my mind between the 24th of May um, singing, as well as the, the rebellious nature, the love of freedom the, um, in, in, in Jamaica. Uh, and then, of course, when I wrote Slavery and Social Death, in the course of that research, it became 
increasingly clear to me that the act of manumission um, is indeed a foundation of an institutionalized notion of freedom. Um, manumission was the fundamental dialectic of slavery. And manumission, um, in, uh, just for audiences who don't know the word, is the act of release from slavery, the creation right. of a free person. Right. So what's interesting about this is that manumission, uh, contrary to what one would think initially, is in fact often essential for the survival of slave societies because um, the slave owner, by enslaving someone, by making them socially dead, as I um, um, like to call it, um, it created a real huge motivational problem for himself. Okay, let's just pause because we're going to get back to man, man, man mission. Yeah. But before we do, I want to ask you a seemingly really basic question, but one that n- almost never gets asked explicitly, except in. I think your work's the yeah. only place I have. What is slavery? Yes. Well, that was essential. Um, problem of slavery and social death. What was it? So I'd um, written about it a great length in um, Sociology of Slavery, Study of Jamaica, and then I saw that it was widespread throughout the world. Jamaicans weren't unique, or the Caribbean peoples, or the modern world. And so my question is, what exactly was 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 this shared experience? And um, uh, you know, you begin with the famous United Nations definition uh, of 1926, which emphasizes ownership and essentially what is the Roman legal definition of um, slavery as the ownership of one person by another, um, the legal possession of another person. That became, um, and that still is for many people, the fundamental view of um, slavery. But I immediately came upon a problem um, using that definition because for the simple reason that in many situations, human beings are owned (laughs) by others who are clearly not slaves. And uh, even the language we use, um, but um, in many marital arrangements, women are literally sold. Now, anthropologists have known this. Um, they use all kinds of euphemisms to um, get around um, the fact, um, but they call it a bride price uh, or a bride sale, if you like, um, or an exchange. But it, it is, uh, in many societies, a sale. But more, in, more interestingly, even in advanced societies, and uh, in a controversial section of the book, I pointed out that um, uh, we sell bodies and um, very often, and it's only um, the, 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 the fiction of the separability of a person's services from their body Something, allow, something uh, like professional athletes or something like that comes to mind. I mean, but the term, the term is used, I mean, we, 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 quite openly. So-and-so is sold. I mean, Joe Namus is sold from so-and-so to so-and-so. Um, but also, I mean, in male-female relationships. I mean, uh, men in their attitude towards their wives and in many other situations, even in um, with respect to um, bonded labor, um, people are owned, literally, and cannot move. And so um, so once one leaves um, 
traditional uh, Western societies, especially those dominated by Roman law, um, it becomes really problematic. Incidentally, even in um, the emphasis on Roman law and civil law, continental civil law, uh, is important because if you examine closely British common law, uh, which takes a rather different approach to property and to ownership, which is seen um, in um, not as um, uh, the, the idea of absolute ownership of a thing um, is problematic in common law itself, um, which has a more relativistic view of um, property, um, which sees, uh, in fact, property as very often um, a, in the possession of many people. And indeed, that idea, by the way, has become even more so with the emergence of intellectual properties and, uh, and with the computer revolution. The idea of property as absolute ownership is itself, as one um, well-known Stanford legal theorist point out, completely fragmented today. I mean, so the situation has got even more problematic. The property concept struck me as not very useful if we are to understand um, the real meaning of slavery, which I saw as more meaningfully understood as a relation of domination, the most extreme form of the relation of domination. So obviously on a continuum, but this is absolute domination, one person by another, an emphasis on, on, on which the violence or the threat of violence is central, and in which degradation and um, dishonoring is critical, and in which, and this is central, a cultural idea, the idea that the slave does not belong, does not belong to the society in which he lives, does not belong to the society anymore from which she or she has been taken, uh, as a genealogical isolate, does not belong to her parents or her grandparents, and has no rights of belonging uh, or her kids do not belong to her, is that complete, uh, that idea is central to all experiences of slavery, far more so than any notion of... Um, so can I just offer a summing up of what you just said? And you tell yeah. me if you think I'm getting this right or wrong. So in other words, we think of slavery as the owning of another person. But in your account, that fails because you have people who are owned who are not slaves. And you also have people who are clearly slaves. I'm thinking particularly of like tribal societies or something. You have people who are clearly slaves but are not owned precisely because the, the concept of ownership didn't exist then, it's anachronistic to project it back. So in alternative, you offer a definition of slavery that makes no reference to ownership as the personal violent domination of one person onto another socially dead and natally alienated person. That's a good summary. <laughs> um, can we move from the summary then to like the earliest forms of slavery? Because I think there's another misapprehension that slavery only came about with Greece and Rome. It's, it's there from the earliest peoples, right? Could you talk a bit about the nature and social functions of slavery in the earliest societies, the tribal pre-settled societies? Yes. One of the, the most extraordinary things, um, with, with discoveries of archaeologists and, uh, and others, students of many um, 
what used to be called primitive, what we may call preliterate or small scale societies, is that, I mean, when trading begins, uh, it's usually trading in people. And um, uh, uh, the um, because they usually have nothing else to do, um, and this 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 pattern that early trade, especially with people who have nothing else, tend to be enslaving people, persisted even in in Western societies in an interesting way. Um, so one of the finest recent studies of um, of early Europe, um, Michael uh, McCormick's. Um, work on uh, early European economy uh, has completely shattered the idea of um, that there was a dark age. In fact, what he found is that what he found is that in um, in the revival in the Merovingian revival, um, you had trading, international trading, and uh, as Europe began to sort of recover finally. Well, um, uh, and what is being traded, as he pointed out, were women down to the more advanced um, uh, southern um, Islamic states. Uh, the Vikings, uh, which we tend to glorify uh, as traders and great sailors, I mean, they, they, what were they? They were slave traders. I mean, they were trading those poor Irish women, I mean, you know, and, uh, and, and northern. Um, uh, uh, women down south. So trade, the use of um, uh, the trading of, of, of persons is, is something that's chronic in human societies, by the way. And it's... It's, it's, it's back. It's back. Right. It's back. Um, in, 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 I, I've become involved in the study of trafficking and modern-day slavery, and it's amazing that real, real trafficking of people is now another major problem. In fact, the um, the ILO, the International Labour Office, in his most recent report, 2017, um, now puts the numbers up to 41 million people around the world being picked or in or in some form of bondage. I mean, which is really incredible. So this 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 thing is um is has been with human beings from the very beginning, and it's it's still with us. So one thing I wanted to ask you actually was this is um it's not. It seems like there must have been multiple, like, creations of the institution of slavery, because, like you say, it goes back in Europe right to the beginning. You can document it in Africa from anthropological work right to the beginning. In Asian societies, in pre-colonial America, you have slaves. And you... And so... But... One, one thought I've always had is that slavery does present a number of unique and recurring features. There's always the aspect of natal alienation. There's always the aspect of domination. There's always the aspect of... Um, that there's all these themes, but those themes seem to occur independently in multiple points around the world. Is there, does, does the fact that so many people have independently invented the same institution of slavery say something fundamental about human nature. I mean, put simply, people like to say we're we're, we're naturally meant to be free. Is it is it actually the opposite? We're naturally slavers. Uh, <laughs> it's um, we naturally have a tendency to want to dominate others. Um, what's interesting is, however, that um, early societies seem to have um, gone out of its way to um, prevent the absolute domination of um, one person by another. 
in that in that um, in in in, in kin-based societies, what you have is a situation in which the best position you could be in is to be embedded in interlocking networks. Call it, that's what kinship is in the kinship system. So you always have a protector, uh, not just your um, immediate um, father. Um, um, but your uncles, your uncle's uncle, or what have you, depending on whether it's matrilineal or patrilineal and so on. So slavery, in fact, um, in a sense, broke through that. This is the only way in which um, someone could, in fact, directly dominate someone uh, in these societies which had these countervailing um, networks of interaction uh, was by slavery. So that, for example, in matrilineal societies, where... um, a man, in fact, um, uh, uh, was a father not of his own child, biological child, but of his sister's child. And um, they had elaborate protections. Um, but one way in which he could get around both the fact that his biological kids are not his own and that, in fact, his control over his children were sort of um, countervailed by um, their um, uh, relation, other relationships was by having slaves. So, I mean, um, this is the only way in which you could directly dominate someone in a lot of these societies. And this is how slavery, we find this occurring over and over. Now, um, you get this, interestingly, um, um, in, in, in even in the language. Um, so if you look at Indo-European languages, um, so, so where, um, what is the origin of the word freedom? Um, and it's it's very intriguing, um, and in a way that this this this, this immediately suggests um, how the idea emerged. Um, freedom um, meant originally among the beloved, we who are not slaves. From the very beginning, it was defined in negative terms. It's the deepest roots of the Indo-European language. Um, uh, um, Etymologically, it's like to be loved, right? It's free. To be loved, to be among the beloved. I often wonder whether um, Toni Morrison got her title from um, that simple etymology. I, I doubt it may just be coincidence, but it means literally in the, in the deepest Indo-European meaning of, um, of being free is among the beloved. And among we who are not Slaves. So the idea, um, the, this this dialectic emerged from very early. Uh, I, in all, I always get shivers down my back thinking that the earliest peoples were walking around with the same hardware that we are. They didn't have the same cultural and learning that we do, but they they had the same brains that we do. They had the same emotional attachments to each other and the same intellects and probably like the similar IQs. And yes. The, the idea of beloved and family is just it's the same for them, and the slaves that they had were the same yes. people that we are, and that's it, it's both obvious and kind of mind blowing. Staying, yes. staying with slavery though in the earliest peoples, one thing that was implicit in what you said that we should make explicit is there is pr- there is very very little, if any at all, economic use to the slave. In, the, in tribal societies, people did not hold slaves to make them toil the land for them or anything like that, right? Yes, very often slaves were an economic burden, if anything. Um, in some cases, among some uh, uh, 
nomadic um, herdsmen, you may get slaves being used to do the really dirty um, crop work and so on. But by and large, I mean, the, the, the level of surplus involved was such that uh, the keeping of a slave is usually more a liability than an asset. Certainly among hunter-gatherers, um, it, was, it made no sense. Um, and, um, uh, but even among um, primitive early horticulturalists, um, the slave was usually more an economic burden than an asset. And they were being used uh, brought for honorific purposes, often also for sexual purposes, to get extra wives. I mean, you know, and, um, and, and for reproductive purposes, because in traditional uh, early societies, um, the, the main point is to have as many children as possible. Before we get and, into the role of women, could we talk about the honorific purposes? So yes. um, I'm just going from your book. I may well be mispronouncing the name but you cover the case of the Tupinamba-like tribe who... Tupinamba, the Tupinamba, Tupinamba yes. who, And you really and, vividly talk through the rites of segregation and the ritualistic sacrifice and eating of slaves. Could you... It's just so vivid. Could you talk, talk us through that case and, like, what the, what, the, what the slaves were doing for that society in that case? Yeah, the Tupinamba in northeastern um, Brazil, and um, they uh, were a pretty warlike group of people. So honor was um, central to their um, uh, their whole system, and um, capturing um, the enemy um, uh, was, uh, of course, the height of um, um, honor, uh, gaining honor. Um, but interestingly. Um, you know, they were a, 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 a hunter-gathering group mainly, and, and they, they, by the way, lived very well. I mean, they, um, they were in that they were fishers, and there's abundant fish, and they didn't need slaves. I mean, and um, uh, for economic purposes, uh, what they needed them for was for honorific purposes. Now, interestingly, the slave was assigned one uh, to one master, and was actually well fed and um, looked after until, of course, the moment when. Um, 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 they came for his sacrifice, and um, uh, which was the entire community saw this as literally consuming the vitality and the life force of the enemy. And um, that was their main function, and there are quite a few of them. And as I said, they treated them with great sort of, um, uh, you know, it's like fattening ones favored calf and uh, until the moment in which they were um, consumed in this um, ritualistic cannibalism um, and um, but this is true of many other societies whether they're users for cannibalistic purposes or not the important point is that honor and the honor gain from owning a slave was critical and uh, and the degradation of the slave and so I call it a parasitic um, form of honor in the sense that you gain honor in the degradation of the slaves, that there lives another human being who is totally uh, in my control, who is an extension, literally, of me. And that idea, by the way, is not, didn't um, end with primitive societies. It went right through. It was very important in Roman society, by the way. It had economic consequences, the degradation, the, the, the idea of the, another person being your extension had important consequences in Roman society in that while we uh, think of Rome quite rightly as great legal scholars, they are the founders of one of the great legal tradition of um, the West, the civil law, which still uses Roman law, um, 
they had one interesting um, failure, and that is the law of agency was not very well developed um, in, in, in Rome. And the way in which the Romans, in the absence of this legal principle, which came much later, um, get around it is by owning slaves. So, um, so if you are in Rome and you have business with someone in Corinth, um, there's no way in which you could, through some legal means, sort of um, complete a transaction. If but someone because turned, you own the slave, he can be an extension of yeah, yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So if a lawyer turned up and said, no, I mean, we want to see Cicero right here, and I'm not going to take your signature, what is that? Um, but if your slave turned up, that was you. This is literally an extension of you. So, yeah, I mean, you can do business. And that's why, by the way, slaves and freedmen became so very important. As the case of Cicero, I mean, you know, Cicero was a slum landlord and the person who ran... I love his... how much you don't like Cicero. Like, I just think that's funny. I don't know why. Um, but, I, you, like, you go I, out of your way to just slap the guy every time you write about the Romans. I, I, I had to do Latin. I was, Latin was imposed upon me and... I, I apologize for my, my British people. There's no... <laughs> yeah, the Latin master in the Caribbean, as in Britain and everywhere, was into the monsters of um, the teaching profession. And um, Cicero and Horace and others were... Um, yes, I, I still... I, I no longer have nightmares about them, but... Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. In next week's episode, we'll be continuing this conversation right where we left off, and we'll be discussing how the forces of slave society, which we outlined in this episode, were generative of the value of freedom, and how that value couldn't have existed but for those forces. One final question I have for the audience is I've been receiving a couple of offers to do paid advertisements on the show, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I'm somewhat sceptical, and here's my reasoning, is advertisers generally want the ads to appear in the middle of the show, like something like the first 20 minutes in is apparently when they get the most clicks, and therefore they'll pay you the most to do that which I guess is why that's always where they show up when I listen to them in other podcasts. So, I want to get your thoughts on this. I'm sceptical because I think with long-form interviews like this, where we're developing sustained arguments, it would kind of break up the flow a little bit. With that said, as we are going out to more and more people, the costs associated with my hosting and storage for this are going up as well. So... The alternative is every now and again I have to do a segment where I ask you guys to sponsor me on Patreon. If anyone has a third option, by the way, please do contact me and let me know. You can direct message me on social media and my emails on the website. So get in touch, let me know your thoughts. I personally would rather every now and again at the beginning or the end of the show, I say, hey, um, as I'm saying to you now, if you're enjoying this show, please do go on and sponsor us. And, you know, I understand the free rider effect or the collective action problem here. For the longest time, I listened to and enjoyed a bunch of podcasts, and every now and again, they'd suggest people donate, and 
I did what everyone did, of completely ignored it. But it really wouldn't take that many people. I did a little bit of math, and in the last month, we had about 7,000 unique listeners to this show. Of those, I think about 2% shared it, and about 0.1% donated, which is fine. I want this to go out for free. I don't want it to be something that people have to pay for. But if we could even get 15% of the people who listen to the show to share it, and 1.5% to donate at whatever level, then we'd be racking up thousands of shares, we'd probably triple or quadruple our audience size, and we'd have a small budget of at least a few hundred bucks a month to play with to help make the show as high quality as possible. So that's, I think, the goal for how we really take this show to the next level, is be a part of it. If you want to help us do that, share, forward, and if you can, donate. And I'll say this, if you're a student, and there was times when I was a student where I had to make $20 last another two weeks... The appeal for funding is not directed at you. If you're a student and you can afford the fanciest coffee in Starbucks without having to think about the cost, then consider sponsoring the show on a similar amount. And if you're a professor or someone involved in education who thinks these conversations are valuable to be going out to young people, again, please enjoy them for free, but consider supporting. So... That's my appeal for monies, and if you'd rather not hear these appeals and me just shove some paid ads in, we can do that as well. Um, So I genuinely love your feedback on that. Um, Please do hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, email me. I I love hearing from listeners, by the way. Email me on anything. If you have thoughts on the show, how we do it, constructive feedback, get in touch. And thank you, by the way, To everyone who has sent me emails, over the last few months, I've got some really thoughtful responses to the topics that we cover, so I'm genuinely grateful for those. I'm also, as ever, genuinely, genuinely grateful for anyone who takes the time to share, to forward to friends, or to donate. Thank you, you're making the show possible. That's it for this week. Join us again next week for Athens and the Invention of Freedom, part two with Orlando Patterson. (laughs) 